0: Hi, I'm Morgan, I'm a journalist.
1: And I'm Kyle, technical and creative director of Soil Soilcentric, and this is Unconventional Paths, a podcast about the many ways to take part in the regenerative agriculture movement. Today, we talk to Kelsey Ducheneau-Scott.
2: I always like to share that I'm a fourth-generation cow-calf producer, but I am also of the 125th generation to steward the Great
1: Plains. She's a tribal rancher in the Cheyenne Sioux River Nation in South Dakota. Her family owns and operates DX Ranch, where Kelsey raises her own herd of calves and runs DX Beef, the direct-to-consumer grass-fed beef-selling arm of the ranch.
0: But Kelsey also works full-time as the program director for the Inner tribal Agriculture Council, an organization dedicated to the conservation and development of Native American agricultural resources across the country.
1: Our conversation with Kelsey covers what it was like to grow up on the ranch, the lessons she and her family have gleaned from working with horses, and what it means to be part of the 125th generation to steward the Great Plains.
0: Kelsey, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk to you.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. So you are a fourth-generation tribal rancher in the Cheyenne River Sioux Nation. You own a beef company. All the while, you're a big advocate and perpetuator of regenerative ranching and sustainable food systems. Just to start, can you tell us a little bit about DX Ranch?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my family's operation is nestled just north of the Lake Oahe Riverbank, which is one of the dams of the Missouri River that flows through South Dakota. We have around 750 acres that my family owns, and then we're fortunate enough to lease another you know, 6,200 acres or so from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe.
0: So we know you studied range management science at South Dakota State University. Can you tell us what it was like to come back to the ranch after school? When I moved home
2: as a full-fledged soil plant nerd, I learned very quickly that I as a human can't impact this ecosystem the way that this ecosystem craves to be impacted. It evolved alongside of large thousand head, cloven hooved herds of bison and people following those bison. And I decided very quickly, I mean, I knew that I always wanted to be a part of my family's operation. I just didn't know why I felt compelled to be a part And I learned very quickly that it was because I wanted to continue to contribute to our plant nation and the the soil health of our ecosystem. And I couldn't do that as a human, but I could as a human interact in a regenerative management system with cattle that I could be a shared owner in. And I could see the growth and refinement and enhancement of our resource base from one season to the next. So luckily enough, my Father and uncle, uh, who were the majority cattle owners at the time, were willing to make some room for me on our allocated land base to buy fifty head of cows. And I was able to actually purchase twenty head of cows and uh, close to thirty home-raised heifers. So I got to buy them from my dad and my uncle, so that oh, wow. I knew where the animals came from, what their lineage was. They, I had a connection to them. And in that first year of me um, making sure that they got bread, caring for them for the winter, and then having a calf crop to care for all growing season, and then loading them on the truck to sell them that fall, it was like the most gut wrenching experience for me because I had an entire two seasons of wondering what the calves were gonna bring, wondering if the market was gonna be good, wondering if it was gonna rain, wondering if any calves were sick and you know all of these things that you just inherently start to worry about like i i think then was when i started to truly appreciate how much my mother must have stressed oh. over me <laughs> growing oh, wow. up. but when it came to sale day <laughs> i dropped my calves off at the sale barn and i saw them walk into the ring i was so incredibly proud of how they showed i guess so to speak they were clean. They were docile. They walked in and they weren't noisy. They they looked like a good set of calves and I felt proud. Um, and then as soon as, you know, they, they brought a good amount, um, we were happy with how the market was that day. And then the, the doors opened and out they went and I never got to see uh-huh. them again. Uh-huh. And I thought this is miserable. This is like terrible. (laughs) You fret your entire calving season through growing season to weaning and you just stress over what your calves are going to bring. And then you never see them again. So you don't know what their life's like. And then I picked up the check from the office at the sale barn. I got in the vehicle and I drove home. And on my way home, I passed countless homes that face food scarcity and insecurity. And I just remember thinking to myself, like we got to fix this. This isn't right. The system is so broken. And that was, you know, one of those deals where you can, you can talk the talk, but you also got to walk the walk, right? Um, In my work at IAC, I've, at the Intertribal Ag Council, I've consistently talked about the importance of helping as a producer, helping to close the gap of our food system and making your product available for local purchase. Well, that was when I had to, buck up and and take ownership for what i've been encouraging other producers to do
0: food insecurity is such a big issue and we know that you work on that because you also work full-time at the intertribal agriculture council but first could we go back a little ways and could you tell us what it was like to grow up on the ranch
2: yeah so i was born in 1993 and then moved home to cheyenne river and that was just home all the way up until I went to college and uh, spent a, every weekend I could coming home because it's just, I, I joke that my work gets to take me all over the country and I am just in my genes, a Great Plains girl, like get me back to the Plains as soon as you can. <laughs> so I was given the opportunity to be the head bum calf manager growing up I suppose that was one of my chores anytime we had an extra calf and uh after successfully raising a couple of calves through a season um my my dad said all right well I'll trade you those bum calves for your pick of a bred heifer well that sounds good so that was how I got my start when I was probably 12 years old um having worked done my due amount of chore contribution on the ranch to having earned a share, I guess, in the cow herd. Then actually, when the stock market began to crash in 2008, my parents cashed out my college fund (laughs) and bought me cows because that was a more steady um, investment. And so we expanded my herd to, you know, five or six animals at that point. And the, the idea being they would consistently give me a five or six head calf crop every year that I would be able to sell. And that would be cash that I could contribute to my college fund in the long run. But I was also gaining equity in a a cow herd that was producing and it was a part of the ranch.
1: This is such a cool story. And like I'm imagining to myself, what it must have been like to grow up on this ranch and to be outside on the plains with these animals all the time. Like since you were, I'm sure just a wee one. <laughs> and so I read, I read an article that you, I believe, that you wrote about your relationship with horseback riding oh, okay. and yeah. thought that that was super cool. Just because I was like, I, I, my experience with horseback riding is like I got on a horse when I was 12 and it took off and I'm terrified now. Uh, Oh, I'm so sorry that that uh, happened. It's okay. It was kind of everything Everything turned out fine. I was, I don't know. I was just curious about what's your experience like of growing up?
2: So that's a great question. Um, And I feel very fortunate in what my childhood exposed me to. And my dad really has a unique way. Like I still to this day have never once heard my dad complain about a single aspect of ranching. And I think that, you know, that was, that's an intentional mindset that he chooses to have. And in that mindset, it's that, you know, I, I chose to be a rancher. Um, I should choose to enjoy every aspect of it. We never like going out and doing chores wasn't like a, did you do your chores yet? Like, no, it was a, oh, I got to get up and go see the calves. Like, you know, let's see if my bum's standing on the deck waiting for me hungry this morning and being only exposed to work. In a fashion that is fun that, that allows you to find the joy of the outdoors, and I think because I was so immersed in it, I truly didn't know that a career in agriculture was such a thing, um, mm-hmm. because it just was like life. Like I, when I I remember moving to college at eighteen years old and seeing that one of the buildings had. College of Agriculture and Biological Science is written on it. And I remember thinking, College of Agriculture, that sounds so cool. What does that mean? And like it just <laughs> ranching was just what my life was. I didn't know that it was different. Um, it, but it also that also shows like how naive I feel like I got to be growing up. Um, I didn't truly start to wrap my mind around what it meant to be living in a food desert until I was, you know, started to get more exposed to that sort of information when I started to formulate my own opinions and understandings and interpretations of policy and stuff as I got to college and it was awakening for me because I I was exposed to the great outdoors and, and the wide open skies and the middle of nowhere in a whole different context than my classmates who were from food insecure homes. Middle of nowhere for them is something drastically different than middle of nowhere for me. And that what it was like one of my first realizations that I made as I started to get a little more exposed and experience that culture shock of living off the reservation long enough to start to interpret things a little bit differently at home.
0: So, I believe you're getting your PhD right now in education. Can you explain how that feeds into your life story?
2: Yeah, so that's a little bit of a curveball there. I am currently studying for, um, it's similar to a PhD, but it's a doctorate in education. Um, And for me, uh, the emphasis in my doctorate is in organizational leadership. And what compelled me to this particular degree program is I see there's so much potential, in in my opinion, uh, of reimagining how we interpret the landscape of the institutionalized education. Hmm. I think that there's so much to be said for exploratory learning and Mm out-of-the-box curriculum that um, embraces chaos. When our students, especially at home on Shine River, when they graduate from high school, they don't ever get their skill or intellect challenged in that very clinical setting ever. It gets challenged uh, with chaos surrounding them and family issues and lack of access to food and a natural disaster coming through, you know, but we don't ever like stress test our learning and our intellect in that sort of scenario. And what I love about like the ag education or or getting out there and learning and exploring in nature is nature doesn't care if you're supposed to have a test from 10 to 11 on Tuesday, if it's supposed to be rain and it's still going to rain on you, you know, so like you get exposed to handling the workload as it comes to you when it needs to be done. And working on that mindset to find a way to appreciate and enjoy the task at hand, even though there's all of these other systems that may seem like they're working against you, you know? Um, so I per- I started to pursue my doctorate in education when I was still the youth programs coordinator for the Inner tribal Agriculture Council. And I really started to see the impact that our leadership development program was having on native youth across Indian country. I I was really inspired by the stories that I interacted with and all of the potential that existed in our next generation. But I was also ashamed of how our current educational system was failing our next generation and all of the talent that existed there. So I decided I would throw my name name in the hat of (laughs) potential doctorate candidates as it relates to education and see what I could do to try to fix that.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. I believe that at DX Ranch, you guys have a few educational opportunities for tribal youth. We do. Can you talk about what those are and why it's so important, especially for tribal youth, to get exposure to land and land stewardship practices? My uncle founded
2: a nonprofit organization known as Project Help. And Project Help is really our vehicle on the ranch here for interacting with local community members. Uh, we specifically target our outreach to our tribal youth here on Cheyenne River, but we don't turn anybody away. Anybody that's interested in learning more about what we're doing, we're happy to facilitate those interactions where people can come out to the ranch and learn a little bit about this thing called horsemanship or how we approach it, lifemanship. And the thought behind that is well, horses are an appealing feature, especially for youth who don't readily have access to horses. And we are very blessed on the ranch to have had a grand, my grandfather, Poppy, his, you know, legacy that he left behind we joke was his family and his horses and his horses were bred for docility. So we have a unique appealing aspect of our horses on the ranch that we're able to use to help get students out of their comfort zone in a safe way um, that exposes them to really challenging the growth of their communication processes. Uh, Because if you can effectively convey a message to a 1,000 pound animal that can't speak your language with just body language, just think how much more effective you'll be at communicating with your teacher who you're having a hard time connecting with at school, mm-hmm. or with your your brother or sister, or mm-hmm. with your step-parent that you don't get along with, you know, really just trying to use the horsemanship experience to guide and empower the development and refinement of those life skills that are so critical.
1: Do any of those young people end up becoming interested in transitioning into Doing more kind of branch-oriented work.
2: Absolutely. So we actually have a couple of those success stories, alongside of designing and building out what our curriculum would be for Project Help, um, which we ultimately hoped to be able to have packaged as a, a curriculum that you know we could distribute and share with other organizations that wanted to do similar sort of outreach. We figured, well, we better put some of this into practice. And we uh, actually started offering ranch internship opportunities or equine internship opportunities to college age students that were predominantly from non-tribal communities. They would pay basically their room and board, but we would tailor an individualized learning experience using some of our Project Help curriculum. We also had the progression we realized that we wanted to be able to have a more consistent relationship with potential y- local youth that wanted to come back and intern with us, similar to what our college internship was like, but a little more tailored to high school students, um, and and to have that one be a paying internship because there's not a lot of opportunity for professional development and resume-building experiences um, on my reservation. So that's, that's really with developing that confidence around assuming horsemanship as your own, like everybody has their own horsemanship, their own relationship with horsemanship. And you have to figure out a way to empower people through the progression of just observing and seeing horsemanship to doing and practicing horsemanship, but then to being able to teach and share the love for the horsemanship, that's when the youth has really been able to embrace and, and to consider how those philosophies apply to their life. So we've we've expanded to uh, being able to hire local interns that then help us reach out to more youth locally. We look forward to continuing a, a natural progression outward for how we see our programs programming continue to expand with project help.
1: Do you see certain skills that people would bring that would make them kind of more successful or more resilient ahead of coming to a job which in my from my understanding it sounds very challenging.
2: Yeah, so we actually have like kind of three core skills that we try to explore as we talk about horsemanship. They are presentation, awareness, and empathy. And so the presentation, that's how you conduct your body language and the message that it sends, how you're presenting yourself to others. Awareness, that is being observant of all of those other people around you, humans, animals alike, or even ecosystems. And then the third, empathy, Understanding why the circumstance is the way it is, and not letting it emotionally impact your ability to react or uh, adapt in a positive way. Um, And so it's just it's being observational about what's going on, being aware, um, and then knowing that how you present yourself impacts others, and how they present themselves should have sort of a reaction in how you then present yourself too. And truly, you know, the horsemanship styles that we practice, it's a make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard approach. We also practice the expression of the horse is always right.
0: That was great. So a lot of the concepts that you apply to horsemanship, I kept thinking how they also really apply to the land and especially regenerative practices. Can you talk about some of the regenerative practices you use at DX Ranch?
2: Yeah, absolutely. A part of where we started to see a disconnect between producers and the landscape is is honestly when the ag credit system failed the ag industry, because then that pushed producers off the farm or ranch full time. And they're now juggling a job in town or substitute teaching or something to generate some sort of income to subsidize. We hear that word a lot, but to offset the expense of farming and ranching on a minimal income. And so mm. when that happened, we started to see this disconnect of producers that are able to be interpreting their landscape every single day. Um, you know, when we think back to Ehani means like a long time ago in Lakota. And when we think back to a long time ago, we, that's all we did was live on the landscape and learn from it and listen to her and help her in whichever way we'd learned she would flourish. And we've gotten very far away from that, you know, nomadic subsistence style of thriving on the mm-hmm. landscape. You know, because we we didn't just subside. We had multi generational families that knew how to prepare enough food to get through a winter. That's not just subsistence. Right. Like, that's thriving. They knew how to preserve meats. They knew how to manage seed banks. They knew all about ethno, botany, and all sorts of relations between the plant nation and what the soil was telling us through the plants and, and what our body needed. So I think that what I really value and appreciate about my plant nerd, soil nerd streak is uh, being able to be out there on the land and, and learning from it and reconnecting again. And that observation that is so important or that was taught to me to be so important through the practice of horsemanship those are all skills in our need to be able to interpret the landscape Mm. and you know as producers that's that's really what we need to do we don't always need to believe or to manage based on what book recommendation is currently the number one seller we need to know our landscape well enough to be willing to practice those philosophies and principles but also be able to interpret where it's successful where it's not and how i might need to modify it to accommodate you know now that being said that conversation could very easily be interpreted as the most you know cutting edge. Regen Ag approach in the books right now shouldn't be listened to. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we should have spent enough time on our land to be able to know what would allow it to regenerate. And our system right now is so broken that we don't get to spend that amount of time on our land. And and so for me, some of the ways that we practice regenerative ranching, it's, it's truly trying to mimic nature. Each organism has a role. There's a reason it evolved to be what it is. You know, if it's a pest, what was its predator? Why are the pests out of control right now? Let's figure out how our management can shift to contribute to the ecosystem of its predators. If it's, wow, my my calves sure had a lot of pink eye this year. Not just saying, oh, let's go get a, a shot from the vet to treat the pink eye, but let's figure out what we did differently in our management, what was different in their diet, what allowed them to be more susceptible this year than last, so that, you know, we'll we make mistakes as producers will continue to. Indian communities have been practicing things like fire management, instinctive grazing patterns. Like we used to herd bison around the Great Plains, right? And I guarantee that over the course of the millennia that we were doing that, every once in a while, we made a mistake. Like, all wildfire probably got away from us once in a while. It just happens. <laughs> People make mistakes and producers do too. And we need to appreciate that in today's um, society that we're all just trying to figure out the ebbs and flows of managing our resource and trying to continue to learn from her and, and what the land has to offer and educating ourselves along the way so that we can rely upon her to tell us the message, but also. Rely upon our knowledge to be able to interpret the message and just try to be willing to adapt and and constantly, you know, figure out ways to have your operation the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard.
0: I've heard you talk about the Lakota mindset of the seventh generation to come. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. So we have a teaching in um,
2: many tribal communities. And it's, it's considering the seventh generation. And the seventh generation is important to consider because it's the generation that there's really no possible way you'll like conceivably ever be able to meet. Um, They are so far down that lineage from you, that you don't know what's going to be existing then. But You as the current generation still have a responsibility to that seventh generation that you're never going to meet. And and that responsibility is to leave this place better than how you found it and to ensure that what you're leaving behind is something better for the next generation to make better for the next generation. So on all the way down to the seventh generation. Similarly, uh, you are somebody's seventh generation. So, seven generations back, there was somebody who was putting forth the effort to try to make this resource better for the next generation, to be better for the next generation. And it reached me. So, it, it o- often helps to resonate with like um, appreciating where you're at on like the continuity of constant evolution and enhancement and repairing of processes and it reminds us that it doesn't have to be so overwhelming of I need to fix this by the end of my career. We'll always be able to continue to improve. Like there's always room for progress and there's always room for contributing to the effort. You know, I'm I'm also someone's third generation. So I can be helping them with what their efforts are by just educating myself about what work my grandfather did in his time as local tribal councilman. And as we appreciate our positionality in the scope of more generations across time, we value the impact that we can have. And so I I really like that teaching because for me, it relates directly to not knowing what the future is going to bring, but knowing that your place in time should always be focused on making things better.
0: You are clearly a fourth generation rancher in some ways this is in your blood It seems like you were meant to do the work that you're doing but not everybody was raised on a ranch and um for other people who want to work with the land or might have an interest in ranching what do you think some of the most advantageous skills have been for you some of the skills that you have that you would recommend others work on or try to develop if they wanted to work with the land or be land stewards of some kind? I always like to share that I'm a fourth generation
2: cow-calf producer, but I am also of the 125th generation to steward the Great Plains. We have to really appreciate and value that land stewardship, it existed in this space long before whatever you know, stake I can attach myself to in in whichever stake that proclaimed this to be the DX Ranch, right?
0: Absolutely. And
2: by doing that, I remind myself that it's not it's not just about what these four generations have done. It's it's about what the indigenous people used to do on the Great Plains. And what that reminds me of is the need to really dig deeper than what the typical outward front facing conversation of agriculture is, you know, um, most producers who brag about being a fourth, fifth, sixth generation producer on their ranch, they don't know whose land it was before their great, great granddaddies, you know, and like that, it's really a, a disgrace to the land stewards prior that were forcibly removed from stewarding that land and forcibly assimilated. Mm-hmm. This is the generation that really needs to ask the questions of, well, why not? Like why why isn't tribal land included in that NRCS program? Why not? What system did exist here when it was truly regenerative mm-hmm. because Mother Nature mm-hmm. was in charge? Don't just feel like you need to buy into whatever system or production style is popular in the area really learn and expose yourself to the potential that being a part of an engaged localized resilient food system looks like you know maybe your interaction mm-hmm. isn't as a cow calf producer but it's as starting a you know small scale vegetable operation with some pasture-raised hogs. There's really unique ways to get involved in producing food that allow a very scalable approach to supporting the enhancement of Mother Nature's resources, but that does require asking that why not question and, Hmm. and starting to redesign and reimagine what your connection to the land could look like.
1: Thank you so much for your time today and going through these wonderful stories and telling us about your life and your experience. That was really, it was really wonderful. Uh, thank you. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Unconventional Paths. Please head over to soilcentric.org guides. On Kelsey's guide page, you'll find a list of all the resources that we've covered with her, as well as additional resources to help you plan your path to regeneration.
0: This episode was produced by us, Morgan Levy and Kyle Lawson. Diana Donlin is the executive producer.
1: Since this podcast is about land, we'd like to acknowledge the indigenous people who came before us and are still here. This podcast is produced in San Francisco, home to the Ramatishaloni people, and Missoula, home to the Salish, Pandora, and Kootenai people.
0: music is by Mestizo B. Stay tuned for our next episode of Soil Centric's Unconventional Paths.